It's Wednesday, December 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We're getting more information on the Omicron variant from the first large real-world study in South Africa and see protection from hospitalization fall to 70% and against infection fall to 33%. Denise Rowland, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what we're seeing from Omicron, more transmissible, and so far, milder infections. Next, many parents and guardians of school shooters unfortunately ignore some of the warning signs that something bad is imminent. We're seeing it with the parents of the shooter at Oxford High School in Michigan, who have both been charged with involuntary manslaughter. But in one case in 2018, a grandmother took action and reported her grandson averting a disaster. Stephen Rich, database editor for investigations at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, we're learning more about what was happening in President Trump's inner circle during the January 6th Capitol riots. Through text messages provided by former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, we are seeing Trump's son, Fox News personalities, and even lawmakers plead with Meadows to convince Trump to do something to stop those storming the Capitol. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter at Politico, joins us for What to Know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The studies that we had last week out of Pfizer were looking just at that front line defense. They were measuring how the antibodies in the blood coped with the Omicron variant. Um, And they found that a booster restored antibody levels so that they could fight the Omicron variant. Joining us now is Denise Rowland, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Denise. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's talk about the Omicron variant. We just got some new data out of the first large real world study of how the vaccines could hold up against the variant. And uh, what we're seeing is that we are getting a less severe illness out of this thing, but it is evading the vaccines in, in a couple ways. We are seeing more people get infected. The effectiveness against infection has dropped, but we're still seeing pretty good uh, numbers as far as how well it holds up against hospitalization. So, Denise, help us with these numbers. What are we seeing? Yeah, so what we got today was um, a large private health insurer in South Africa looked at um, a couple of hundred thousand cases of COVID-19 since September and compared how vaccines protected people against infection or hospitalisation during the Delta period, so September and October, and how well it was doing in the Omicron period, basically the kind of the first uh, sort of three weeks between mid-November to early December. Um, what they found was that folks who were double vaccinated with the Pfizer-BioNTech shot um, were 33% um, protected from infection, and that's versus um, an 80% protection and during the Delta wave. Um they also looked at protection from hospitalisation. Um, that also fell. Um, so it fell from 93% during the Delta period to 70% during the Omicron wave. Um, so it's not great news on either front, but I guess the good news is that there's still okay protection against hospitalisation. And the big bottom line is that it does seem to be more transmissible. I mean, obviously, that's why people are putting out the calls for the booster shots. I think Pfizer last week said something about, uh, you know, getting that booster shot does provide more protection, at least against infection. But we're seeing that the antibodies aren't holding up as well against the Omicron variant. 
That's right. Yeah. So, you know, the immune system, it's it's kind of two layers of protection. So you've kind of got the front line, which are the antibodies that circulate in your blood. Um, how well they work against the Omicron variant determines whether or not it can like gain a foothold in the body. Um, if it gets through that front line, which it, the Omicron variant appears to do so quite a bit, you have this, you know, next layer, which is your um, T cells, and they, you know, hunt down cells that the virus is infected, and they kill them to stop your body kind of being a virus-making machine. Um, so, I think you're seeing basically different effects on these two different layers of immunity. Well, that's what it appears to be anyway. So the studies that we had last week out of Pfizer were looking just at that front line defence. They were measuring how the antibodies in the blood coped with the Omicron variant. Um, and they found that a booster restored antibody levels so that they could fight the Omicron variant. Those studies from last week didn't look at severe disease because mm. it's the um, the next level of immunity, which is more like T cells that protect against severe disease. Right. So the reason this um, South African study is interesting and important is that it's the first big real world study to give us a clue about severe disease as well as protected from infection. You know, we're looking at the vaccines through this study. The researchers also found that the Omicron variant did erode the protective uh, effect of prior infection also, you know, a lot more transmissible. Yeah, now that data would still be anecdotal. Um, even, you know, the Discovery Health study, they talked about this too, but they cautioned that this is very early days and you, you, we, they can't really draw any firm conclusions from that yet. The main reason is that it takes time for the, you know, when you get a COVID-19 uh, infection, you'll feel rough for a while and then you can take a turn for the worst. So there might, we've only had this virus in our midst for three weeks or right. three to four weeks. So there's sort of still time for it to show that it can be as severe as earlier variants. But, you know, it might not be. Um, you know, there's a chance it isn't as well. I think the caution would be that it's too soon for us to say that yet. Um, the other point that scientists make is that even if it is milder, being more transmissible could make it more dangerous overall. So a milder but more contagious virus could do more damage than a harsher but less transmissible virus <laughs> just through right. sheer case numbers. So exactly. say, you know, a certain percentage of cases go on to become severe while a bigger number of cases full stop means more severe cases. So there's sort of a double-edged caution there on the this clue that it might be milder. Number one, it might not be. Number two, even if it is, it can still do an awful lot of damage. It is spreading fast. It's uh, already the dominant strain, obviously, in South Africa. It's very soon, if not already, the dominant strain in the UK, and it's in about 77 countries. So it's spreading quickly. A lot of caution urged, as you mentioned. We still need more data to see how bad this one is. Denise Rowland, Healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. His grandmother, who was going through her grandson's stuff and realized that he had been uh, planning, like detailed in his own in his own notes, like a, a school shooting. Joining us now is Stephen Rich. 
database editor for investigations at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks for having me. We've been seeing what's what happened with the recent uh, shooting at Oxford High School in Michigan. This is a different story. So do you have a, a story of a grandmother who actually did turn in her grandson? We found this case of this grandmother who was going through her grandson's stuff and realized that he had been uh, planning like detailed in his own in his own notes like a a school shooting and this was a thing that probably could have made a lot of national news but the arrest happened the day before the shooting in parkland florida a few years ago and so basically once that happened it got buried under everything but what we saw was this woman who didn't want it to happen and ended up just going against what a lot of i think parents uh, go for their instincts and, and turned their kid into authorities. Yeah, you're talking about Catherine O'Connor, who was the legal guardian of her, her grandson at the time. And as you mentioned, he, she found a, a notebook with, with super detailed stuff. I think it even planned the day. And, you know, talking about the guns, the pistols, the assault rifle, the ammunition he was going to buy and the bombs he was going to make. You know, she found all this stuff. And, and as you mentioned, she she didn't know what to do at the time. She just wanted to help him out. So they ended up reporting him and, and averted a, a possible massacre there. But that's not often the case, right? A lot of the parents, maybe whether they think their their kid is not capable of something like that, they they don't often report them, despite there being a lot of warning signs in many cases. For one thing, most of the time, the guns that these these kids get are from their parents. Um, you know, and most of the time, those things are not locked up. They know exactly where the guns are. Um, there have been plenty of cases over the past twenty years that we've seen there have been warning signs the parents knew and yet they left the gun in the exact same place that they always leave it and they you know when a shooting happens they it's their immediate thought like we've seen cases where parents are like they hear of a shooting at the school and their first thought is that that might be my kid right um and and so it's kind of shocking like that 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 would be someone's first instinct, especially if you left a gun sort of out for the taking, which is what happens in most of these cases. In this case with the crumbly one in Michigan, you know, there was some some signs, you know, knowing that that uh, Ethan had access to all of this. They even went to a shooting range. A teacher found Ethan searching online for ammunition and, and they told the mother and she said she texted him later. Said, oh, I'm not mad at you. Just don't get caught next time. Uh, you know, this is how they're building the case against those parents to hold them accountable as well. This is a very, very rare case. Uh, The bar is incredibly high. The laws in most places don't really exist to charge uh, parents who are negligent with their weapons. Um, And in this case, this was there are a lot of different warning signs. And I think that it's one of those cases where, you know, there's more evidence than there would be because the parents texted these things. There's a lot of social media um, evidence out there. And so... Uh, there's a lot of reason in this case to believe that the parents knew this was not only a possibility, but a strong probability. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with the parents. Uh, You know, if they do get prosecuted, you know, could it open up that case to be applied to other people that might have been negligent in all this? You know, if they get off, will prosecutors back off on doing certain things like that? So there's going to be a lot of eyes on on this uh, particular case 
uh, in Michigan. One of the the things about this is that you know they're trying to fit laws that were not necessarily intended for this to 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 make it work. And I think that there's a lot of argument that it should apply, and there's a lot of argument that the I'm sure the defense will make that they shouldn't. And it's going to be a fascinating outcome. Um, we do know that there are some states that have laws uh, that are specifically pertain to negligence for parents who who leave guns in bad places, but it's not most states. And right now, there isn't a ton of momentum to pass those laws because states still have supermajorities of one party or the other, and they tend to not want to work with the others. For Catherine O'Connor, the grandma that turned in her grandson, you know, she pleaded with the courts to, to show him some leniency. He still got a 22-year prison term, uh, I guess, because of how detailed his, uh, his uh, planning was with all of this. But even in the end, uh, her grandson said, you know, it's just too easy for people to get a hold of guns. So Stephen Rich, database editor for investigations at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Yeah, it seems like Meadows was the central point of contact or clearinghouse for people trying to reach uh, President Trump on January 6th and to get him to do something to stop the violence. Joining us now is Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Hey, good to be with you. Let's talk about former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. He's in the hot seat. He's already been held in criminal contempt by the House investigators looking into the January 6th rioters and insurrection. But we're just learning how many people were contacting him and the Trump team to get President Trump to do something to stop the rioters when that day was happening. Yeah, it seems like Meadows was the central point of contact or clearinghouse for people trying to reach uh, President Trump on January 6th and to get him to do something to stop the violence. I mean, not only uh, were there sort of uh, political supporters of the president, there were also a number of uh, prominent uh, Fox News personalities, uh, several members of Congress, and at least one of the president's own family members. In fact, his son, Don Jr., uh, went through Meadows trying to get a message to his father uh, saying that he's got to condemn this blank ASAP. This Capitol Police tweet is not enough. That's what Don Jr. said in a message, a text message to Meadows. Uh, the Capitol Police tweet refers, I think, to the first kind of tepid response that President Trump made uh, once violence broke out at the Capitol. Yeah, House investigators have been throwing the number out there, 187 minutes. So I guess from the point where either things started or where Meadows started receiving texts, the big question is, obviously, were messages being relayed to the president? Were they meeting? Were they planning? What were they trying to do during that time are part of the big questions. Right. Uh, That has always been a mystery here. What was the president doing during that time? And, you know, one would also wonder, doesn't his son have any other way to reach him except going through the White House chief of staff? Uh, It seems like the president had either cocooned himself or perhaps was, um, you know, being deliberately um, unresponsive. And that's what the committee is trying to figure out. And as you mentioned, it's interesting that Meadows turned a lot of these records over, uh, some of them that are obviously very um, negative in terms of their portrayal of the president as unresponsive and, and sort of un 
caring about uh, what was happening at the Capitol. Uh, and it looked like Meadows was at least partially cooperating with the committee. And then he kind of abruptly cut things off about a week ago and said, no, um, now I'm going to stand behind President Trump's uh, uh, assertion of executive yeah. privilege, and I won't be giving any testimony. So that's where that dispute stands, and that's why we've ended up with this uh, vote on uh, uh, holding Meadows in contempt, possibly pushing him in the direction of a criminal contempt prosecution. Furthermore, what we see through these texts is just how much everybody was looking to President Trump to to stop this. They knew that he almost alone probably had the the possible power to stop it, to, to speak to the masses, to say something. That's why people were pleading with him. Right. And, and that is what is so damning, I think, about these text messages. Um, it's not that there is a response, it's that there wasn't a response, uh, or at least as you point out, for many hours, there was no response. I think it was only uh, uh, eventually the president did a slightly more assertive uh, video statement that was released. Uh, but basically, when most of the violence was taking place uh, on Capitol Hill, I think it was between about 2.30 and about 4.30 in the afternoon, uh, based on the hundreds of, of criminal cases I've also been uh, covering that are playing out over January 6th violence, uh, there was really very little forthcoming from the president. And there have been these reports that he was watching the scenes unfold on uh, cable television and that he was actually uh, happy about it. Uh, and, you know, obviously the only people that could tell us that would be the president himself and those who were in direct contact with him. And I don't think we have yet a clear public account from Meadows about um, their interactions on, on that day. You know, I was watching some of the debate over uh, holding Mark Meadows in contempt. You know, Democrats are, are pushing this. Republicans are saying this is not the way to go. Uh, but it does show that the, the committee investigating this is pretty serious. I mean, they already did it with Steve Bannon. It looks like it's happening to Mark Meadows. But, uh, you know, these are kind of the actions they're left to resort to when they're refusing to, to cooperate. Right. I mean, I think one of the arguments that some of the Republicans are making is, look, you know, this contempt citation is somewhat counterproductive. I mean, basically what happened when they went this route with Bannon was that was sort of the end of the discussion. And it looks like they won't be getting any more information from Bannon. And, you know, maybe he will be found guilty in months and months, or maybe the case will be thrown out, or maybe he'll be acquitted. Who knows? But it, it isn't the most productive route of actually getting information from that person who you hold in contempt. Um, the purpose of it, once you go the criminal route, is supposed to be punitive to punish them for ignoring the subpoena. There are other mechanisms you can use that are what, what they describe as coercive, which are intended to encourage you to make your life unpleasant in a way that you decide to uh, go along with the subpoena. And, you know, the House is not using those methods. Instead, they're looking at the criminal referral, and that ends up being more of a signal sent to other uh, witnesses who've been subpoenaed that they should cooperate than more than it tends to be a successful method of getting more information out of the specific witness involved. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, happy to do it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.